Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a familiar voice back to the program. That would be Joseph Bouchard. He is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Joseph, I'm going to ask you, just take a moment uh, for those meeting you for the first time. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, thanks again, Brian. It's good to be back. So I'm a freelance journalist working on Latin America. I just came back from the region for about two years where I cover geopolitics, international security issues, how U.S. interests play into that, and then planning on returning to the region shortly to continue my coverage. And uh, it's great to be back and to talk to you about about those issues. I know right now in America, there's a hyper fixation on, oh, you know, politics and the presidential race and so forth. And sometimes I forget that there are there are other countries that are fighting their way through some pretty difficult things, too. Um, El Salvador being one of those countries. And you've written an excellent article for RealClearWorld.com about uh, how El Salvador's uh, president has actually become the very thing he swore to destroy. Give us some backstory on, is it Bukele? Is that how you say his name? Bukele? Yeah. Bukele? Uh, you know, it, it's it's easy to forget that sometimes other countries have elections. <laughs> I understand. So basically the story is he got elected in 2018 on a, a very third party platform and a, a platform where he, he began as a part of the Socialist Party in El Salvador and definitely broke away from that and focused on anti-corruption, fighting the establishment, that kind of rhetoric, but also reinvigorating the country's economy, um, fighting crime. And he quickly got to that. You know, he inherited the highest homicide rate in the world for a country that's not at war, uh, which is quite the task. And he quickly... Um, you know, there's two sort of different stories, but the one story that he proposes is that he put basically everybody that was affiliated with the gangs in jail, and as a result, cut the homicide rate. Uh, I think now it is at five per hundred thousand, which is on par with many European and, and Western countries. Um, but the other story, the one that I cover, is that instead he he signed a secret deal, at least reportedly from uh, the U.S. government and the Wall Street Journal and other independent media outlets, uh, signed a secret deal with the MS-13, who I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, Oh yeah, which uh, got its roots in El Salvador after being deported from L.A. and the U.S. and uh, basically put everyone else in jail and uh, mass incarcerated anyone that the MS-13 didn't want, and that included innocent people. Uh, last week, there was a release of a mother of children that had nothing to do with any gang, the rival gangs, and all of them don't get, none of them get a trial, according to Bukele, which results in yeah, just random people being sent to prison. And you know, it's tough because sure, the homicide rates dropped, and and people are very happy about that. And a lot of people, including in Ecuador, we're seeing that country blow up. A lot of people want to follow that model, and mass incarceration and mass arrest. Uh, without much due process to reduce the homicide rate and reduce criminality, but you you might have to destroy your own democracy and rule of law as, as we're seeing to do so, which is what my article is about. Sounds like a, a really 
blatant case of be careful what you ask for or be careful what you wish for. Um, I mean, I had heard for years about El Salvador's murder rate being, you know, just incomprehensibly high. And I'm sure there were those who, who breathed a sigh of relief. Finally, someone's doing something about it. Um, as you mentioned in your article, uh, this this guy's kind of been a darling of the American far right. And I, I've seen people, yeah, finally, someone who comes in here who's serious about, you know, cracking down on crime. But there comes a point where I guess you have too much of a good thing. In other words, what what starts as a crackdown on crime can turn into, um, I think the, the term he used was the iron fist, which affects mm-hmm. everybody, criminal and non-criminal alike. That's right. We all get wrapped up. And, you know, when he suspends the Constitution and appoints his own judges and uh, extends his own powers as president and announces that he'll run again, which is against the Constitution, you know, everybody's a victim to that, even though you might think that you're not. And, you know, I understand people's frustrations, obviously, uh, having a homicide rate and a criminality rate that that's hot, that's that high is completely unbearable and quality of life is just untenable for many people, which is why so many have left. And he is in a way fixing the issue. But I think we have to be honest about the, the consequences of that policy. And my article goes into an alternative solution, which he actually embraced as mayor before he was president in two towns, his hometown and San Salvador as well, where he slashed homicide rates uh, very quickly by embracing socioeconomic reforms that did not put millions of people in jail, did not uh, target innocent people. And, and all it did was provide everybody a sort of decent economic and uh, social community and, and opportunities to thrive, and, and it really dissuaded a lot of people from engaging in the criminality in the first place. Is there any kind of precedent with national leaders uh, striking a deal with gangs or organized crime, and, and basically, can they do, can they be trusted? I, I don't know. MS-13, I've always had the impression, that's one of the more serious gangs out there. Well, it depends on the gangs, right? I would say... Sure, you know, cartels at the end of the day, they're a business and they're a corporation and they want to make money. I think some people in the gangs are probably ideological, but at the same time, you know, they're greedy people. And if if they end up thinking that they're not getting their end of the bargain and that they could be getting more by uh, dissenting and not following the deal, they will. You know, a lot of uh, Latin American countries have um, unfortunately seen that reality where they have signed deals with cartels and, and guerrilla groups, and then the group realizes, wait a minute, we're not, uh, the, the government isn't following through on its promises, or we could be making more money, you know, all the gangs are already in jail, so why not just pursue it? And there might come a point where MS-13 does that, uh, so it's a temporary solution. Then you've seen it in Mexico, Colombia, a bunch of countries where deals were signed, and then they, they falter away when the gangs realized that uh, they wanted a better deal. Tell me about uh, Ecuador. I was just reading about them in the last week about, um, I don't even know which criminal gang, but some criminal gang was running rampant in uh, in Ecuador. Uh, what's what's their situation? Is, is it even closely related to, you know, the kind of uh, lawlessness that, that was seen in El Salvador? A little bit. It's mostly related to Mexican cartels and Colombian cartels that are leaving those countries and, and seeking a base of operations. Uh, controlling the ports in Ecuador that are much less regulated and uh, overseen by the government than in Mexico and Colombia. And rising cocaine prices is also part of this. 
Um, and there's just a balloon effect of, of gangs leaving those countries and going to Ecuador, which uh, very recently, and then the government has also pursued a, a sort of, they call it a decapitation strategy, where they they go after leaders and then those cartels still exist, but they don't have leaders, so they, they split up. And unfortunately, that creates more cartels. And uh, by nature, if the government is going to war with them, it creates more conflict. So it's just uh, that sort of nexus and it just all blowing up at once. Boy, it, it sounds like there are no easy solutions. Um, in, in your opinion, is there a way back from this abyss that uh, that Bukele has, has put his country on the edge of? I would say so. I, I think it's very complex and we have to take our time and not, you know, obviously I understand if people get frustrated if, if short-term results are not uh, satisfactory, but I think setting it on the right path, at least, uh, would be a good start, you know, uh, stop uh, criminalizing small drug use, for example, stop incarcerating innocent people, give people basic rights to a trial, a lawyer, representation, humane treatment, um, and sort of undo that whole prison complex. I'm not saying release all the people that were found guilty, but I am saying put in, put back in the rules in place that made that country function and that will ensure that uh, people don't revolt in the long term and also that uh, someone else after Bukele comes through and doesn't just abuse that system. Um, and then after that, I would say embrace the socioeconomic programs that Bukele himself championed and focus on the root causes of criminality and why people joined gangs in the first place, which isn't usually because they like it. It's just because they don't have anywhere else to go and the gangs offer them uh, a roof, food, uh, you know, stability, safety for their families, whatever, and, and address those causes and make sure that uh, the problem doesn't start in the first place. So remind me again, in in February of this year, you say Salvadorans should be asking for a different, more democratic future. What to, What is the nature of the elections that, that are coming up? That's right. So there's an election next month. And right now the polling has Bukele winning this by a landslide he wasn't supposed to run because technically presidents can only have one term in el salvador and many latin american countries to prevent uh dictatorships and abuses but he got away with that uh, through his own appointed supreme court and he will run again and he right now is polling at about 80 percent Okay, I'll be keeping an eye on that. Actually, I need a good distraction from what's happening you know, in, in the U.S. <laughs> with our presidential stuff. Again, we're talking with sure. Joseph Bouchard. He is a freelance journalist and a, a contributor to Young Voices. Joseph, where can people follow you on social media? So you can follow me at Wonk on Twitter or X, and uh, you can uh, just reach out to me there, and I look forward to chatting more. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're very happy to welcome Grace Bidalic back to the show. Grace, you've been on here many times before, but I know there are some folks who are meeting you for the very first time. Take a moment and tell us who you are and what you do. 
Sure. Hey, Brian, it's so good to see you again. It's always great to be on Moving Forward, one of my favorite programs to be on, and you are my favorite host. So You're very kind. Um, <laughs> I am the director of the Dissident Project, uh, which is a project of Young Voices, um, and we are a speakers bureau who works with uh, young people who have escaped authoritarian governments. So we work with young people from... Uh, Eritrea, Venezuela, North Korea, uh, Hong Kong, uh, and a variety of different places, uh, a variety of other places, uh, and, and find them speaking opportunities in American high schools to talk about their experiences in their home countries, why it is they came to the United States, and then to talk uh, very candidly about American liberties and why they should be protected. Um, so yeah, that's that's who I am and, and what I do, and I'm based in New York City. Uh, where Young Voices has an office, and I do my work from here. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about these these dissidents. Um, a lot of us just take for granted. In fact, we're very nonchalant about. Well, you know, yeah, there's places out there that have tyranny, but we really don't put a human face to it. Talk to me about some of the people who are uh, these young, these dissident voices that are working with young voices and, and, and some of the stories behind them, because they have something very real to share with us that I think a lot of us wouldn't even suspect is going on if we didn't you know, broaden our, our viewpoint. Yes, they really do. Um, I'll, I'll start first with Daniel DiMartino, who you may know. I'm not sure if he's been on the show before, but oh, he's... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. He was a contributor for Young Voices. Uh, he was... He is a Venezuelan dissident in his own right um, and came over from Venezuela in 2016, pursuing an education, pursuing a better life. His family are Venezuelan through and through. They owned small businesses. And unfortunately, at that time, their their daily income had plummeted to under two hundred or to under two dollars a day. Um, so it was really a dire situation for them. They came to the United States. Um, and Daniel has really dedicated his life to warning people about the dangers of socialism and authoritarianism. And of course, he was a Young Voices contributor, as I just said. Um, and through Young Voices, through writing about his experience, uh, he came up with the idea for the Dissident Project. Um, he had actually been to a high school to speak to a high school classroom um, at the beginning of 2022. And he realized that the teacher who, you know, uh, gave him the opportunity to come and speak to her classroom, had to pay for both his honoraria and uh, for his train ticket up to Boston. And so he thought that that was an absolute travesty. And thus the Dissident Project was born through Young Voices because of the flexibility and the creativity of our CEO, uh, Casey Given. So we're, we're very grateful that both that Daniel has such an expansive mind and that Casey had the willingness to, to take a, to take a risk. Um, and so far we've been in over 75, uh, different schools and, and institutions across the country, which is so exciting, spoken to over 14,000 students and administrators and teachers. We're very happy about that. Um, secondly, Grace Joe, our North Korean dissident, um, is has a has a, a fascinating and very harrowing story that we sort of try to keep out of middle school classrooms because of its graphic nature. But she escaped North Korea with her mother and her sister. Um, and one story that really stands out to me is when she came to the United States, 
she and her mother and her sister were driving in a car for the first time together uh, down the road, and they got pulled over for, for, for speeding through a couple traffic lights because they were joyous about having uh, having made it over to the to our country. Um, and all of a sudden they were they were very nervous. The cop comes up behind them and they look out and see the cop face to face. And they all start laughing because they realize, you know, this is the United States. Nothing, nothing like we've been through can happen to us again. And so it's just, there are some, though her story is very harrowing, there are some really beautiful, very profound moments um, of levity as well. Uh, Frances Hui is another one of our uh, dissidents. She is from Hong Kong. She was a part of the Yellow Umbrella uh, protests, uprisings in Hong Kong, protesting the national security law um, when it really began to uh, to weigh on the Hong Kong people. Um, and she was actually the first person from Hong Kong to seek political asylum in the United States. And so she has been just uh, an incredible advocate for the freedom of Hong Kongers. Um, Additionally, recently in December, uh, she had a bounty of a million Hong Kong dollars and an arrest warrant uh, by the, uh, uh, put on her head, essentially, by the CCP. Um, and her family, wow. who is still in Hong Kong, was brought in for questioning by the CCP. So she has had... Um, she has had an eventful few months, and we've done everything that we can at the Dissident Project to try and support her. Um, and then, let's see, Tamine. We can talk about T Tamine Dibizorgi, who is uh, absolutely wonderful. She's our Iranian dissident, a young woman from Iran um, who fled the Ayatollah uh, in the mid-2010s uh, mid um, to pursue an education. One thing that we love to talk about with Tamine is that she is a performer, by nature, right? She is a, she loves to sing punk rock. She loves to sing classical music. She has blue hair. Every time that I see her, she has like a new hair color going on. And I'm, I'm always very excited to see, um, the updates, so to speak. Um, but she is, she is, her story is incredibly powerful. She, she leans into the message of, of freedom of education, freedom of speech, um, and freedom of freedom of expression more broadly. Um, and she is now a law student. Uh, in Washington, D.C., and so we're, we're very, very glad to have her. Additionally, she and I uh, were just chosen to be visiting fellows at the Independent Women's Forum, so we're working together on a dissident project for that company as well. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about who we are, what we do, um, and who we work with. Um, in fact, can yeah. I ask, for those who really would like to, to, to dig a little bit deeper into the dissident project, I know you guys have a website. Where, where can we find that? We do. It's dissidentproject.org. And we also have uh, Twitter or an X, depending on what you call it, uh, and an Instagram. And all of that will be just at dissidentproj, P-R-O-J. Okay, it's, I love that. Uh, I love the ones that you've highlighted, and and I hope people will take a chance to to look a little bit deeper into their biographies. and And who knows? You know, maybe there's someone within earshot who's like, "Wow, that's somebody we would like to have come speak at our school." Something I want to make really clear, and I know you've you've touched on this before, though. This is not a for profit type of venture. In fact, uh, there's there's a much deeper purpose behind this than simply making money. People could be out there, you know, throwing book deals and movie deals their way, but there's a more important message that, that these dissidents are trying to get across. What is that message? Yes, absolutely. So, firstly, thank you for bringing that up, Brian. Um, we, all of our speeches, all of our 
educational opportunities specifically for high schools, for high school teachers, administrators, students, everything that we offer to them is free, free of charge. We want our message, which is warning against authoritarianism and socialism worldwide, providing historical context for students, um, and additionally, uh, emphasizing the importance of American liberties to be as as accessible as possible, right? So um, that's really the foundation of why the Dissident Project was created because of that story that I told you a bit earlier about Daniel and his experience at Algonquin High School in Boston. Um, but yes, all of our services are free to high schools uh, across the country. And there's just nothing like the voice of experience. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's one thing, you know, for someone to say, well, there was a story my grandfather or my grandmother told me, you know, behind the Iron Curtain. These are people still young, but uh, very much uh, aware and having actually lived under um, very authoritarian rule. And boy, they, they can speak with, with authority when they, when they talk on these subjects. Yes. And we've seen that young people connect to young people in a different way, right? As these high schoolers are watching Tamine or uh, Daniel Chen Contreras or uh, Angus Umtaklu or Francis Hui talk, you know, they're seeing themselves in the person that's talking to them. So we hope to provide them with just a little bit more context in that way. Grace, wonderful to catch up with you once again. Again, it's the dissident or dissidentproject.org. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Ethan Brown back to the program. Ethan is a Young Voices contributor. He is also uh, the creator of the uh, Sweaty Penguin podcast, among other things. And Ethan, let's let's fill in a few blanks that I've left out here. Uh, you wear a lot of hats, my friend. This is true, yeah. Which which are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, in particular, you're very dialed into to climate policy, and and this is this is where you spend a lot of your focus. Um, I'm looking at an article you wrote for the Hill about how the climate movement is is among those that are seeing some splits over uh, Israel and Gaza, and particularly activists targeting Israel. Um, man, I knew there was a lot of division. This is one I hadn't really counted on. So, uh, spell it out for us. In and help me understand, uh, where, where are some of these uh, rifts developing in the climate movement over Israel? Yeah, I'll start where I come from. I'm a 24-year-old Jewish climate commentator. My heart breaks for everyone uh, innocent in Gaza and Israel that's been killed for the Israelis that are still hostage over 100 days in. Um, it's been a horrible situation, horribly emotionally distressing, never something I thought I would write about. And I also had the opportunity to visit Israel last February for the first time. It was a uh, reporting opportunity through the Jerusalem Press Club to go meet with uh, clean tech entrepreneurs and learn about some of the incredible climate solutions going on in Israel. And through that trip, I learned a lot about 
how climate solutions can be a peacemaking tool in the region. Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians, all these people are facing this same climate challenge. And this is one of the fastest warming regions of the world. And the best way to address it is to work together. And I got to meet and interview several amazing people, including a uh, Palestinian professor, uh, Dr. Tarek Abu Hamed, who uh, does this work building bridges. Uh, very long-winded way to say, I was very upset to see how the climate movement has moved in a very anti-Israel direction. To me, Israel is my homeland. The Jewish people are indigenous to it. And I saw the potential that peace and climate solutions could have to help the region. So I wanted to share those lessons with people. So what exactly is Israel being accused of doing that is uh, anti-climate uh, in terms of, of their actions? There's there's a number of things. And really what I tried to get at in the article is how I fully respect if climate activists want to support other causes, if they disagree with me about the intricacies of this conflict. Totally got it. Linking the conflict to climate has to be done carefully, especially if you want to create a movement that's welcoming for all of us. So some of the things that have been done, uh, I've seen accusations that Israel is trying to steal Palestinian fossil fuels. I explain why this is not accurate. These uh, offshore gas leases are actually about 80 miles west of Haifa, which is as far from Palestinian territory as you get. Um, I've seen accusations that Israel is uh, forbidding Palestinians from collecting rainwater, which is partly true. It's uh, Israeli uh, laws basically set all water as public property. It's a big reason why Israel has managed to handle water scarcity so well. But as part of that, there are officials who have discriminately denied permits to Palestinian water projects. And that's a big problem, but it's a little different from how it was characterized. And more recently, I couldn't even get this into the article in time, but The Guardian did a whole piece about the carbon emissions from the conflict, which the facts were true, but I found it very misleading and out of context. Uh, they were talking about hundreds of thousands of emissions coming from Israel's uh, counteroffensive in Gaza. This is compared to like 150 million tons of emissions from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that's that's a taste of it. But there's a lot of accusations that are being made that I think are untrue and I think can be damaging to the movement. It's, you know, the whole Israel-Gaza or Israel-Palestinian conflict. Um, I mean, look, even as a kid growing up, I remember that being quite a source of controversy. It's It's been going on for a very, very long time. Is there any middle ground where people are going to be able to find some kind of, of commonality? Or, or is this just destined to, to continue on with people fighting over things that they, they, they don't even personally remember, you know, happening? It's so difficult. And I think there's a difference between what happens there and what happens here in the U.S., where a lot of people have not been to Israel, have not seen a lot of what I had the incredible opportunity to see last year. And I hope to go back sometime and learn more from people within the region itself. I think that both sides need new peace-oriented leadership. I think that 
both sides governments have not done a good job i think maybe we can agree on that and uh from there i think that like i talk about in the article climate is an equalizer everyone needs clean air clean water and a healthy environment if for example israel were to collaborate with palestinians to build solar infrastructure or water infrastructure you can help palestinians meet their needs you can create jobs that kind of thing can start to reduce tensions i i think there are opportunities like that that could happen in a in a situation where both sides want to achieve peace, um, but we're we're a long way from that, unfortunately. Are there any positive developments uh, climate-wise as we go into the new year? I mean, right now we were joking around before we jumped on the air here about, uh, boy, it's cold, <laughs> and I'm like, I could use some global warming right now. I know there have been a number of meetings. Uh, what was it? COP28 took place here just a few weeks back. Um, what do you see on the horizon that that gives you hope? Yeah, we, we talked recently about how the UN Climate Conference led to every country in the world signing on to a transition away from fossil fuels, which is a pretty big deal. I recently did some reporting on why some countries may not be as bought into that if you want to check out the Sweaty Penguin, but it's a big deal that they, excuse me, uh, it's a big deal that they signed that. Uh, furthermore, I think stuff we've talked about before, right? We have seen the cost of solar drop by 85% in the last decade, onshore wind by 55%, batteries for electric vehicles by 85%. Uh, We've seen proof that all these climate solutions don't just help uh, the environment, but also the economy, health, justice, security. That's always been why I get out of bed in the morning and I want to work on this issue, because I think there are solutions that are tenable, that can uh, not be sacrifices, but bring economic prosperity and help all of our lives. And so let's let's keep on that. Okay. And and for those who want to delve a little bit deeper into into this subject or, or actually even into the uh, the Israel uh, Gaza issue. Um, do you have any information resources that you find are good, credible information that's that's not uh, you know steeped in in anger or or rhetoric? I think that there is pr- probably, but for me, it is a lot of just reading as much as I can and talking to real people, which I've had the opportunity to do and using every critical thinking fiber in my body. Lots of places have lots of different reporting. Things get taken out of context very easily. Uh, It's been difficult for me as uh, someone who is Jewish and does believe in Israel's right to exist to see some of the ways even the UN and nonprofit agencies that I've supported for, or not supported, but valued their work for a long time, taking a lot of things out of context or not making statements on a lot of the horrors of October 7th. So I'm I'm in a bit of a weird spot and I'm still struggling to know what to believe. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So my best advice is to read everything you can uh, while keeping an eye on your own mental health and think as critically as possible about it. Amen. And and watch for the bridge builders. Look for the people who are actually building bridges as opposed to just trying to tear down everything in sight. Yes, that's Ethan, a fantastic piece of advice. Ethan Brown is a writer and commentator for Young Voices. He's also the creator and host of The Sweaty Penguin. Ethan, where can people find you? 
You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at Ethan Brown 5151. Uh, the Sweaty Penguin is at thesweatypenguin.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we've also got a Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. So go check that out if you want any merch or bonus content or get questions on the show. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Very happy to welcome Noah Gold back to the program. Noah, you're going to be a familiar name and voice to some of our listeners, but for the sake of those who are hearing you for the first time, take a moment and introduce yourself, please. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Brian. It's always a pleasure. My name is Noah Gould, and I work for the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. And I run our student programs and alumni outreach, as well as write on business culture, entrepreneurship, thinking about um, literature and culture as well. So I love to connect different ideas in my writing. I'm excited to talk about uh, entrepreneurship with you, too, because I'll admit it, I was very late to the party when it came to um, even entertaining the idea of being an entrepreneur. Something about, you know, the safety, the security, the predictability of just being an employee, collecting a regular check, and not really having to make any of the really tough decisions. It's very appealing, and I can understand why people want to cling to that, because, again, it's, it's predictable. However... Everybody I talked to who eventually took the chance and stepped out there into the unknown and and became an entrepreneur says, yes, there are risks, but I would never trade it for what essentially felt like a, a leash around my neck, you know, in that secure paycheck. Talk to me about your experience. Yes, yeah, so you're right that uh, being an entrepreneur involves a certain amount of risk, but it's a really important uh, role in the economy. If we think about um, you know, problems in the economy that people are facing that need to be solved, the entrepreneur is that person who sees that problem that is not currently being filled by any existing company and says, I can step into this gap and add value in a unique way. So yes, it's risky because you might be not assessing what that need is in the right way, uh, but there is a certain amount of reward. Um, so uh, my wife and I own a business that has kind of existed for 40 years. So we are entrepreneurs in the sense that we are making some changes to the business and readjusting it for the, uh, the 21st century. Uh, but it's also kind of a salt of the earth business that just adds value uh, really day by day to people's lives. And there, there's something to be said for that. I mean, I, I know not everybody uh, has has that uh, that daring mindset. You have to have a little bit of a sense of adventure because it's not the easiest path. And I think a lot of times we we, we go into the workforce. Well, I'm looking for a way to make the most money, or get the most prestige and the most money without actually having to to work really hard. But entrepreneurship requires hard work, even even at a small level. You've got to be willing to put in as many hours as it takes, not just a 40 hour week. Yeah, there is a certain amount of uh, just hard work and uh, getting down brass tacks and getting the work done. Uh, a lot of the focus on entrepreneurship, you probably hear this word entrepreneur, founder, visionary, right? The people, the type of people who are on the cover of Forbes, it's tossed around a lot, but I think it's important to kind of contrast this idea of it's hard work, it's just basic solving people's problems, 
versus what we see a lot, which is a lot of hype around being an entrepreneur, uh, which I point out in this piece, the vision of entrepreneurship that some people have, you know, owning the Tesla and having the Rolex, that might kind of reflect working in a tech company in upper leadership more than it reflects the reality of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, there's, well, you know, Hollywood has shown some pretty amazing entrepreneurial stories, but you know, it's always a montage, you know, right? It goes really quick and there's some catchy music that goes with it. And um, that doesn't necessarily communicate, you know, the blood, sweat and tears that uh, that a person who's acting as an entrepreneur is going to experience. And, and I guess the, the thing is, if you're doing it right, you're still going to experience those things, correct? Yeah, I think the Hollywood version has a few things that's wrong with it. One is, like you said, it's the sped up version. Um, and we get, we kind of skip over, you know, maybe the entrepreneurial failures, the companies that didn't work out uh, before they got to the one that we're seeing on screen. Um, so, you know, that's one element. Another element is often it's focusing on just one person. So that plays better on the screen, right? We've, we've seen all sorts of, uh, different character studies in, in cinema and it plays really well, but there's a whole team of people, not only that are building on technology that have been, you know, developed by different teams that you're building off of, but also the different people on a team and the kind of accident of time and place that comes together to make, make a successful company. So some of that Hollywood um, panache or, or gloss that we see is really more of um kind of a myth of the founder rather than the reality. Well, and you allude to this in your article too. We see influencers on social media and some of them, you know, are making some pretty serious money through, you know, their various uh, Instagram or YouTube accounts and whatnot. Does that count as entrepreneurship or is that just a different type of, of entrepreneur that, that we're dealing with there? Yeah. So a little bit of the, uh, influencer thing can be entrepreneurship. Some of it might just be uh, a certain type of grift. Uh, if you see, you know, if I sell a book that's, you know, here's how to make money in, in two steps. It's, you know, step one, and you've got to buy my book to get this. Step one is uh, write a book. Uh, step two is sell it to other people who, you know, want to know how to make money. And so that's kind of a, it's not really creating long-term value. It's just kind of marketing yourself and using your platform. So this is two different trends that we see that are, uh, seem self uh, contradicting, but are both existing currently. One trend is we talk about innovation and entrepreneurship a lot. So there are lots of influencers who want to talk about their lifestyle and what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And there's lots of innovation centers at universities that, you know, innovation is just kind of accepted to be a good thing. On the other hand, we actually have a fall in the money that's spent on the research and research and development uh, that companies are doing. So there's a kind of a slow fall since the 80s of real innovation uh, and real kind of investment in these these changes that we need to see in the business world. Wow. If you had advice for uh, young people who are, are considering taking the entrepreneurial path, uh, what's something that they should probably keep in mind, uh, you know, before they jump in with both feet? 
Yeah, so I think there's two things that I would uh, really want to highlight first off for anyone who's considering being an entrepreneur. One is that there is um, a certain uh, nobility or value to it if you can solve real problems uh, that people face. There's there's certain people who will kind of undermine that business is value that it is valuable or that it creates value for real real people. That's not the point that I'm making. I think there is a real value that you can create, and this is a noble calling if you want to pursue this. Uh, the second thing is that you want to really focus on what is the problem and what is the solution. That And the importance of that, I, I can't really overstate. Uh, you need to focus on what solution are you trying to bring to the market and how can you make people's lives better in one way or another. And it's not going to be by um, just projecting this uh, image of an entrepreneur. You really have to have value that you're bringing to the marketplace. Wow. I think I may, I may need to hear this as much as anybody else. <laughs> um, what are some of the, um, the icons that you look to, people who have done a good job of being problem solvers, forward thinkers, and not just out there projecting some kind of flash or hype and, hey, look at my new Tesla or whatever. Um, who are some of the people that you look up to when it comes to entrepreneurs? Yeah, so there are so many companies out there doing great work, and lots of them are, you know, direct business to business. That are they're serving other businesses. Some of them are just quietly working in their communities to solve problems. So, in some sense, it's hard to know where to start because there's so many great examples of companies that are just doing this quietly, and they're never going to be on the cover of Forbes. They're never going to have a big documentary made about them, but they are out there. They're solving problems. One company that I love to talk about, and partially this is because it's a Grove City College college graduate uh, who helped found this is uh, Gecko Robotics, which is a uh, organization, a business in Pit the Pittsburgh area that basically has these robots that are able to um, scan pieces of infrastructure like um, oil tanks or pipelines or different things that would take a lot of man hours uh, to inspect. And so what they're able to do is help save off uh, leaks or problems that businesses have for these large pieces of infrastructure. And so they've applied robotics in a really practical way. Um, and they were featured in the Wall Street Journal this year, uh, and they say that they survey 60,000 pieces of physical infrastructure that are kind of in their uh, wheelhouse. So that's a great practical thing that they're doing of taking real innovation and then applying it to a real world problem. Okay, and I would recommend for anybody who really wants to get a little bit deeper dive than, than we've been able to cover in this short 10-minute conversation, uh, they should check out your article on the uh, Acton Institute's website. And uh, again, we're, we're talking with Noah Gould. He's the Alumni and Student Programs Manager at the Acton Institute and a contributor for Young Voices. Noah, where can people find and follow you on social media? Yeah, so I uh, write about all my pieces and, and what's coming out and news on Twitter slash X uh, at Noah C. Gould 1. So feel free to follow me there. Okay, and Gould is G-O-U-L-D, correct? Exactly. Thank you. Okay, great to catch up with you. Thanks again, and I hope we talk again soon. Always great to talk, Ryan. Thank you.